Well, we're in a series, we're continuing a series and focusing on the eight attitudes Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that we're, we're to have as disciples. And uh, those uh, we've entitled uh, this series, The Be Attitudes, because it's what Jesus wants us to be. And I, I trust that through this summer, we'll be able to uh, get a little more insight on that as we focus on these Beatitudes. But Jesus offered the, these Beatitudes to remind us that God isn't, isn't focused on man's outward performance, like going to church or giving, as much as that's great and wonderful, or, or even being good, but He is concerned with what is on the inside. And just like when uh, uh, Samuel was uh, told to look for the next king, and God directed him in that way, and, and there's little scrawny David. Uh, God said, for God, you know, God does not see as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And that's what we need to be re reminded of. God looks on the heart, and He looks at that to, to acknowledge the direction we're going. Well, so far, we've, we've looked at the first three Beatitudes Christ shared with us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is seeing ourselves for who we really are, people in need of forgiveness. And when we do this, we are then ready to accept Christ's forgiveness and enter the kingdom of heaven. And then blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This speaks to facing up to tragedy, feeling true sorrow, not only for what hurts us, but also for the sin within us. We can't hide from our hurts or bury our guilt. And when we hand over our sin to God, He does forgive us. He comforts us. And when we face tragedy with Christ at our side, He will see us through. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine going through difficulties and situations without Christ by my side. And then, of course, we saw uh, in, in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And this means to follow Christ's example and live as servants to those around us. We, we may try to, to, to build earthly kingdoms in our own greed and efforts, but Christ tells us that to be truly rich, we put others in front of ourselves. And then this fourth beatitude that we're going to be looking at today tells us to look at our desires. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I can remember as a youth pastor, and I think I shared this before down at Labish Center, we would do a 30-hour famine with the youth group. And uh, during one of the times that we did it, a particular year, it also coincided on the weekend that we were having a spaghetti feed. And so we started the fasting on Friday night, and it was supposed to go through Saturday, and here are the women coming in preparing the wonderful spaghetti sauce that we smell throughout the whole church. And it was awful. But uh, after that time, it's like, oh, we're going to feed on some spaghetti after this. And uh, it was uh, the hunger that we felt, and it was, it was difficult. I can also remember, too, as a soccer player, doing daily doubles and practicing hard in the heat. Now, it's nothing like down in Texas or any humid uh, uh, type of weather, but uh, I just remember it being really, really hot, and that water tasted so good. Uh, after running around in, in, in the heat. Hungering and thirsting. Uh, the words satisfied, well-adjusted, and practical are actually in opposition to this verse here. Now, that doesn't seem right, but if someone calls us 
satisfied, well-adjusted, or practical, we would usually take it as a compliment. And we should, as far as the definition of these terms are concerned. Being satisfied means not wanting any more than what we have. Someone who is satisfied doesn't always want this or demand that. They see what they have or where they are, and they feel content. Probably the most prevalent time we might feel discontent is during maybe Christmas when we see all the advertisements revealing all the things we just can't live without. And we look at those advertisements and on TV and everything, and we go, oh, that would be nice. Oh, that would be nice too. Our goal is to leave this sort of extravagant desire behind us, and hopefully we're making headway. That being said, this is not the sort of satisfaction we're talking about today. Being well-adjusted means that we have adapted well to whatever is happening around us. It's being the lone male presence in a room full of women and still being able to keep your wits about you. I went over, to, I had to go get some uh, hair gel for Becky and I. We, we uh, share the same kind and, and uh, went over to Clackamas Town Center at a place called Ultra, I think it's Ulta, Ulta Beauty. I have never been there before. I don't know if I ever want to go back. <laughs> it's like a warehouse of beauty products everywhere. And as I stepped inside, it was full of females. <laughs> and I'm not, no, intimidated, but I'm just going, where is a guy in here? There's no guy. Oh, boy. And so I go and grab the hair gel, and I'm standing in line for like 15, 20 minutes. This is a huge line. Anyway, standing there and all these women around is like, wow, this is really weird. I think I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll be all right. But it's that kind of thing, be able to keep your wits about you when you're in a different situation. Well adjusted. It's being the new employee settling into the patterns of action in your workplace. It's the family settling into a new neighborhood like the Larocco's in Connecticut. In fact, I just spoke to Neil this morning. He says hi to everybody. He misses you guys. They're settling in pretty well. It's taking hardship in stride and adapting to the new realities that tragic events can bring. All of us will adjust in these kinds of situations. We just don't always adjust well. <laughs> but being well-adjusted is exactly what the Word says. Well-adjusted. That being said, this is not the quality trait we want to focus on today. And then being practical means that we're quite useful in our own resources. Practical people are always nice to have around. They're the ones that can help you unplug your sink or fix the leak in your toilet, maybe even add a new outlet on the outside of your house so your pool will be able to plug in, the pool pump will be able to plug in. And they'll take nothing more than a cup of coffee in return. No, that's okay, I just want to help you out. There's someone here among us too that was practical enough to build the communion cup inserts that you see before you because those little communion cups don't fit in there like they do. And someone saw a need and thought, I think I can take care of that. And they did. And they didn't want to be known. They didn't want to have any kind of you know, uh, compensation about it. They just wanted to help. There are those people around us that are like that. They want to help out. They're practical. They see a need. They try to meet it. When I hear the word practical, I think of someone who can and will get the job done. Someone who, who sees a need and, again, tries to meet it. This is not the sense of being practical that we're going to be talking about today. Satisfaction, being well-adjusted, being practical are good qualities when applied to most areas of life. 
but there is at least one situation when all three of them can actually bring us down, and that's in our spiritual fitness. Our spiritual fitness is the different elements of our, our, our personal faith, our desire to know God better, our, our knowledge of His Word and our track, our track record and applying it to our lives. We can know God's Word, but how, how do we put it into practice? The time we spend in prayer and our faith in the results of prayer. The fellowship we enjoy with other believers. We need each other if we're to grow as Christians. If our physical fitness means the strength of our physical hearts and our, and, and our physical bodies, our spiritual fitness represents the strength of our spiritual lives, our faith. Now, if we look at our spiritual fitness and say, good enough, we're walking down the wrong path. Being satisfied with our faith, thinking of our faith as complete, without room for growth, it's wrong and a sure way to stop growing spiritually. If we, would, if we had allowed our, our minds to become well-adjusted to the sin around us, comfortable in it, then we need to get out of the comfort zone we've wandered into. It's amazing how inoculated we can become to things which, in a different context, would cause us to react in disgust. For example, if I wrote down all the explicit language we've heard in our workplaces, in our communities, and read them from this pulpit, you would probably throw me out right now at this moment. And yet, yet when we hear it on TV, we simply shrug them off as another sign of the times. Interesting how context kind of plays into that. And if we think we are practical enough to rely on our own resources for our spiritual nurture, we're not very practical at all. It is the atheist, not the Christian, who thinks that everything they need is within them already. So what can we do to build up our spiritual fitness? Jesus addressed this by saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. By righteousness, we, he means our desire to know God and to live the way he wants us to. God is often identified as righteous and the God of righteousness. So when Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's calling us to seek after God himself. Righteousness is also simply the right way to do things or, or living our lives in the way of the righteous. By telling us to strive for righteousness, he is telling us to put God in a life that honors Him at the very core of our being. And this is so essential to how we live as people that Jesus compares it to our desire to eat and our desire to drink. Aside from breathing, <laughs> these two instincts are probably the most powerful in our bodies. I'm a little addicted to breathing. Maybe you are too. But we can control them. And sometimes we do a good job with this and sometimes we don't. But if we try to ignore them for too long, they can and will take over all but the strongest minds. It's hunger and thirst that makes people walk miles for water and a handful of food. There are appetites and desires that keep us alive. And it's good, good that they are so strong as they are. So if Jesus uses them as examples, he must be making a very strong point right now. That point is that we should crave spiritual food just like we do physical food. And more than that, we should see our spiritual health as more important than our physical health. After Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, 
You remember, he was tempted by the devil to turn stones to bread in order to feed his starved body. There would be nothing wrong with this. If Jesus wanted to turn stones into bread, he was certainly allowed to. He probably could if he wanted to. But to put the devil in his place, Jesus refuses, telling him in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He knew that in this situation, a loaf of bread was nothing compared to the life-giving power of the Word of God. He also knew the power of hunger and thirst, which is why he refers to himself as the bread of life and salvation as springs of living water. Because he knows that these things, bread and water, are essentials of the people he was talking to, and that referring to them would would then trigger a, a powerful association I'm hungry or I'm thirsty, I need to also feed myself spiritually. So it was a good trigger mechanism for people to remember that. We need those in our day. We need those in our minds to be reminded of what we should be doing. So whenever you feel hunger pangs, whenever you feel a thirst for, for, for water, also remember, oh, I, I need to spend time in God's Word. I need, to, I need to do that if I have not done that today. Let that be a reminder to you if you have forgotten to spend time in in God's Word. He also knew how hard his audience had to work to attain those things as well. The area he was speaking in was was incredibly incredibly poor. People had to dig far for clean water and and, and work hard to make a a living off off the land. So food and water were hard-earned staples. They weren't kitchen conveniences that we have today. So when he says to this crowd, hunger and thirst for righteousness, he knows exactly how much these appetites consume his hearers. And he is saying that righteousness, knowing God and living for Him, was as important as life itself. And without righteousness, they would never be filled. And this leads to that second half of this verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger is a desire that is never completely filled. (laughs) It can be satisfied by food. It can be repressed by drugs or even willpower. It can be ignored for short periods of time, (laughs) but it's never truly filled. We're going to be heading off to Multnomah Holiness Camp, and for the week, we are going to probably feast on some very good food. And I remember in the past when we've gone there, we'd have a breakfast and then we'd have lunch, and then we'd have dinner. And by the time we'd had lunch, I'd think, there's no more, no more room. I don't think I can be ready for dinner. This is good food and eating too much. But the very next meal, it's like, ooh, I'm hungry. <laughs> ooh, that, that smells good. We are still hungry at the next meal, never truly filled. And the same argument can be made for thirst. It ebbs and flows, but it never, ever leaves. And there are other appetites, other desires we have that never really find fulfillment. (laughs) Our TV seems to be too small or old after a visit to the local Best Buy. (laughs) We can earn so much, but there is always more money to be made. We can live in a big house, but there's always a bigger house to hope for. We can have 10 outfits in our closets, but want 10 more. (laughs) We can drive a nice car and want a nicer one. 
We may enjoy what we acquire for a time, but just like our hunger and thirst, all of our desires end up persuading us to want more. Desire is something that compels us and doesn't like to let go. And these desires can drive us to distraction. That's why Jesus brings up our desire later on in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, a familiar portion of Scripture that addresses worry. And if you've worried before, that's a great portion of Scripture to go, go to to be reminded of what you need to do. But basically, He's telling us to not let our desire for food and drink and clothing consume us. We need these things, but we need God more. And when we put Him into first place, the other things fall into place. And I understand that there are many who are living in desperate situations. And I don't, I don't mean to minimize this, this situa- their situation at all. And you've gone through those situations, maybe, maybe yourself as well. Early on in our ministry, Becky and I have experienced situations that tested us and strained our, our resources. And when we fixed our hearts on God and His ability to help us, He did. We have lost count of how many times we were blessed by the love of God expressed through other people. And that continues on here with this wonderful family that we've always been blessed by as far as being able to be helped by. We have never been in need in that way. I also understand, though, that there are many believers in different parts of the world who find themselves in situations I may never face, where food is scarce, water is rare and unhealthy when it's available, and clothes are ragged. When our desires cloud our perspectives to the point where we worry too much about what we'll eat, we lose sight of of the God who feeds us. When When our want for drink overwhelms us, we forget That it's God who leads us to water. When we worry too much about our daily clothing, what we'll wear, we are ignoring the God who gives us the strength to to meet each day. And all these desires will never really be filled when we make them the focus of our lives. They will drive us into a worry that will consume us and leaving us wanting more and more. But when our desire is righteousness, to know Him, to live for Him, we will one day find fulfillment. Because God promises us that in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Our desire to know God will be met because we will see Him face to face. Sharon is there. She is seeing God face to face. Loved ones who've gone on before you, who've put their trust for eternal life in Jesus Christ alone, are face to face with Jesus, face to face with God. And our desire to live for Him will be filled because we will live with Him in heaven. Now, I can understand if all this talk of righteousness can leave us feeling a bit inadequate. It's kind of like the the bar is set really, really high. And that's not a bad thing, because if you think you're righteous enough already, (laughs) you're deeply mistaken. Jesus saved some of His harshest words for those who were self-righteous. And in this beatitude, Jesus is not saying that we have to already be righteous, but that we have to desire righteousness. 
We cannot earn God's love by impressing Him with our, our deeds, what we've done, how much we've given, how many times we've gone to church, all the good things that we can think of doing. We come to Him in faith, trusting that He will help us, that He will love us, and that He will save us. And the righteousness that builds up within us as we seek Him is not the, the sum total of all the good things we've done. How do we desire righteousness? We desire righteousness by living in faith. Listen to the words from Romans chapter 1, verse 17 says, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Also in that same book, chapter 3, verse 21, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And also in that same book of Romans, chapter 4, verse 4, Now when a man works for his salvation, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So God sees us as righteous, not when we try to impress with ourselves how good we can be, but when we put our faith in His love and His care for us, what He's done on the cross. <laughs> when Jesus is telling us to live as though righteousness is our food and, and, and drink, He is telling us to put our faith in God. He is telling us that we can seek righteousness by living in faith. He is promising us that we will, through our faith, see God's face. He's not expecting us to generate righteousness from within us, but to trust that God will provide to those who seek Him, and He will. And these first four Beatitudes are all pointed to the inner self, seeing ourselves for who, we're, who we really are, people in need of forgiveness, facing sorrow instead of trying to bury it or run from it, seeing ourselves as servants to those around us, and seeking God and His righteousness like we seek the very basics of life. We must never look at our personal faith and say, good enough. We must never let our hearts become numb or well-adjusted to sin. And we must never think of ourselves as practical enough to take care of our own spirits like we take care of ourselves. Jesus deliberately chose our appetites for food and drink to show us how completely we should seek Him. He spoke to people who spent most of their lives seeking to meet these very needs and said, make God and His righteousness your heart's desire. Put God first. Desire righteousness. He backed this up by doing the same, making His Father His heart's desire, refusing to minister to His own appetites when the devil tempted Him in the desert. And He promises that our desire for God, unlike our need for food and, and drink, will one day be completely fulfilled. And we can seek God knowing that we will see Him face to face. We can strive to live His way, knowing that He will one day bring us home to be with Him. And what a day that will be. <laughs> And we don't have to do it on our own. We seek to know God and to live life the way He wants us to, knowing that when we do, it's living a, uh, living a life of faith. 
and He knows we can't do it on our own. He expects us to look to Him for help, to rely on Him, to put our faith in Him. If we believe we can do that on our own and be islands unto ourselves, we're fooling ourselves. We need each other. It's iron sharpens iron. We need to make sure that uh, uh, we all are following the God's Word accurately, because it can be done inaccurately. We need to be uh, willing to keep each other accountable, being willing to be kept accountable by others as well, too. This is something we do together, something we do together, but also, too, remembering that not only those who are with us, but God will be with us to help us through all the way through. When we make God and His righteousness our heart's desire and seek Him in faith, we will not be disappointed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, some of you might accuse me of ending early because I want to get to camp, but that's all I have. <laughs> and I trust that God has spoken to your heart, and if He has, and you are finding yourself in the situation where you're going, I probably eat and drink more than I read my Bible. I probably spend more time worrying about what I'm going to eat the next meal than I worry about what God's Word says to me. I'm probably worrying more about uh, the thirst I have instead of thirsting after Him. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in these ways, then it's time to maybe to readjust and recalibrate and spend some time with God right now and say, you know, Help me get back on center. Help me to refocus. Help me to realize what's important in my life. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. They're going to lead us in the last couple songs. And as they do, again, if the Holy Spirit has been speaking to your heart in some way and you need to respond, we have the altar here. You can come do that. You can, online you can do the same thing in your own little altar place if you want to create one there and just spend some time with God. You can also spend time right there where you're at with God. But again, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in a specific way, the only thing we should be doing is acting and responding in, in obedience to what He has for us.